Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanma, and I'm now halfway through a PhD at the Sydney University School of History and Philosophy of Science, studying international space cooperation, space law, and space debris. Since the last episode, I'm excited to announce that I've acquired and figured out how to use Instagram. You can follow me on at Annie Hanmer and see all of my travel adventures. As part of that enterprise, Space Junk Pod now has its own official email, which is thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. So feel free to send me an email with any suggestions, comments, or questions. I'll be off to the US next week en route to the IAC, International Astronautical Congress, and SGAC, Space Generation Advisory Council meeting. So hopefully I'll get some editing done on the plane and bring you episodes more frequently over the next few months. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to Michaela from Sydney and Francis from Canberra. And I'd also like to thank everybody for being really supportive and um, putting up with the fact that I release podcasts very infrequently and unreliably. All right, admin done onto the pod. This episode is part two of the interview with Chris Johnson, the space lawyer from the Secure World Foundation. It's basically just the bits where we got distracted from our main task of talking about tardigrades on the moon. So if you haven't heard part one, I suggest you go back and give it a listen. While I was editing, I realized that a lot of this discussion is really esoteric and it's about interpretation of common province versus common heritage. Those are words that are used in the various treaties of outer space law. If you're not really nerdy like me and you don't sleep with the moon agreement under your pillow, you might be a little bit baffled as to why we care about this. So there's a couple of points to note. The first one is that disagreement exists about the interpretation of international space law. And this is very similar to disagreement that exists over whether pineapple ought to be on pizza. That is, Everyone who thinks about it and works on this problem thinks that they have the answer and thinks that everybody else is probably wrong. And the second one is that the phrase common province appears in the Outer Space Treaty, which is the first of the major treaties. Common heritage appears in the Moon Agreement, which is the last of the major treaties. And the Moon Agreement is the most hipster of all space law because it only has a very small number of, I was about to call them followers, uh, a very small number of parties. As an Australian, I consider the Moon Treaty to be law, and the fundamental reason for that is that my government signed up to this treaty. But as an American, Chris's government has not signed up to that treaty. And so it's very possible that Chris would not consider the Moon Agreement to be part of international space law in the same way that the Outer Space Treaty is. And this, of course, plays into our discussion. So that's totally fine, and this is just a delightful quirk of international law, which you get to enjoy in audio form. As always, I'm required to say that any opinions expressed by me on this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of any organization with which I am associated. Enjoy. How do you look at sustainability? Because it's one thing to think about sustainable within our lifetime, but it's another to think about, you know, acting in space in a way that is sustainable 
over many generations or even um, many millennia? Yeah, I mean, there is a, there is kind of a definition of sustainability or sustainable development, um, kind of a famous definition from the Brundtland Commission report. I don't know if you're aware of it, which is, um, you know, development, which takes into account present needs and the needs of future generations. I think that it just popped into my head. It is known and it is accepted in other fields that technological progress will allow us to do things in the future that we can't currently do. You know, when they when they discover papyrus and and uh, you know um, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that, and they find these ancient texts, they go, "Well, right now, if we were to just unroll them, we would probably ruin these scrolls." And we just don't have the technology to access them. We know that in the future, technology will be better. Let's not unroll these now until we have like better you know, imaging and radar technology. And so we can look through, um, we can look through it and, and build three-dimensional models of what this scroll says. So that's, that's, that has like a kind of an understanding that Oh, in the future, we'll be able to do more things and more advanced things, things that we simply cannot do now. So that having that understanding that in the future, technology will be different, I think is that's kind of important. And we have we should have that. And we do have that also when it comes to things that we do in outer space, for example, like, well, right now we may have the the ability or within our lifetimes, we may have the ability to build habitats on the moon you know, caves on the moon, use lunar regolith to build uh, to build things on the moon. We may have the ability to access asteroids, use asteroid resources. But in the future, we'll be able to do it maybe more efficiently, more productively, easier, cheaper. So maybe we should put some things aside for the future. And it's not, it is the opposite of let's do everything we can now. It's also like kind of, management of natural resources say a country has natural resources say those some of those resources are non-renewable resources like forests trees and biodiversity flora and fauna yeah they have a certain economic value that we could go and mine those resources now and we could all just cut down the rainforest and sell off the timber and sell off the the useful you know resources uh, in the subsurface resources and and then they'll be used up but it, that's not a sustainable practice because you have to think well what do we do then what do we do after that maybe we should be good shepherds of natural resources to preserve them for the future and it it's it also says let's not put everything aside we can use some resources now but eh, let, let's 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 be let's do so in a sustainable fashion i would say um, no, it's a, it's a really interesting point, and especially when it when it comes to space, because many of our space law and space treaties are based on these common heritage principles, which is, I think, to my mind, another way of invoking sustainability. But then if you think about archaeology, which you brought up, archaeology has a really long history of getting it wrong and looting and destroying history or destroying artifacts and so on. So maybe... You know, for archaeology, they've gone through that process and then come to a point of saying, okay, hang on, let's not do it that way in our methodology. Let's build in the idea that we're saving something up for future technologies to, to do it better, but we can still do something now and manage it in that way. But with space technology, 
I wonder if because it's kind of new and exciting and within a generation or two of first being developed and thought about, we're still in that process of thinking because we can, we have a mandate to, and it's harder to ask people to put the brakes on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Or um, there is an incentive to like I think I saw a, a photo of, you know, from like 1900 or 1890 of mummies for sale in Cairo, like people that had just looted tombs and they found mummies and they, they just sell them to whoever, whatever tourist happens to show up. So if you went to Cairo at that some point 100 years ago, you could buy a mummy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's it's kind of astounding. Who know we we it's lost to history who those mummies were and whether there we could learn anything more about, um, I guess Egyptology or anything like that. Um, I do have to, you know, you said common uh, common heritage of mankind. I do have to say that it's super important, especially if you have a Australian audience, to get the law correct. Because yeah. when I when I talk about space law with this certain particular Australian lawyers who I disagree with about the legal status of, of outer space. So mm-hmm. I, I, again, point uh, to um, Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty that says that, that the exploration and use of outer space shall be the province of all mankind. So it is the activity of exploring and using outer space, not space itself, but the activity of exploring and using, which is the province. Uh, province would be akin to a domain or a purview or um, uh, uh, what's the word? A, um, a, a, an area that one could explore if one chooses to. So mm-hmm. Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty prohibits any nation or any group of nations or the international community from owning outer space. Humankind does not own outer space. It is not the heritage of mankind. We did not inherit it. It does not belong to us. Um, if anything, you know, and, and this ha- must be realized, nature does not belong to us. We belong to nature. So outer space doesn't belong to humankind. The moon isn't uh, humanities to do it as we choose. It, uh, it just, uh, just like all these other planets, um, we belong, we are part of it. And, and, once we understand that, that it is bigger than this generation or all of uh, society or humankind, it's, uh, and then we are a subset of nature itself, then, you know, then we don't see it as merely a resource. Outer space, the moon, asteroids are not resources to be utilized and capitalized upon. They're areas that we can explore, we can use, certainly, um, and grow but that they have an intrinsic value that is kind of beyond um, anything that we should really interfere with. I mean, if, uh, say, the United Nations said um, we can open up the moon for uh, any activity on the moon and you can mine it, uh, you can do anything you want on the moon, uh, you know, we can utterly destroy the moon, Um it seems like that would be an unwise move. Uh, mm. Yeah. I, I, or, I mean, it, it's almost like you know, maybe hundreds of years from now, we'll have the technology to do to, to really mess around with nature like that on that level. Um, right. Like terraforming, not, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like um, if say, if we could terraform Mars, should we, or 
Uh, there'll be huge debates about whether we should. Mm. But it's an interesting reading of space law, and I think an important one to put it in that framework is of explicitly rejecting an anthropocentric view of the world and the universe. Um, so sort of once in science we've moved away from saying the Earth is the centre of the universe and everything rotates around it, we know that's not true. But mm. when it comes to human interaction and um, social interaction, that there's also that movement of saying it's not all about humans, we're just one life form that happens to exist within space and um, operate within it. So as you say, it's not as though there's sort of a heritage aspect in that respect. I think that's a really yeah, interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, that's only like a kind of a modern conception that there is nature, the natural world, there are other species, and then there's humankind. And, mm. and we, we had to have that re re removed from nature to observe it uh, in a scientific fashion and realize that it, there is the observed world and then there is us and, and we must observe it objectively. But I think in some senses we've gone too far if we think that we are not um, we're not a part of it. And, and that's how, um, I think we've learned that lesson from, you know, realizing how climate change works to realizing that species, that, that viruses, viruses can cross over different species and, you know, we're, we're part of nature. We're part of the, you know, the animal kingdom, et cetera. Um, and, and I think we'll have to realize that and, and really rebut that belief that, um, outer space is the heritage of mankind. Mm. I mean, that's that's. I would say that that's the the height, the absolute zenith of um, like anthropomorphic, uh, human centered philosophy. To think that humanity owns other celestial bodies in the solar system. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's that kind of desire. I think within some international law to avoid territorial disputes and avoid disputes over sovereignty so that you can, I guess, moving away from a colonial worldview with a recognition of the damage that was done through that. But then, as you say, there's that next step of saying, well, even as humankind, we need to be careful not to think that just because we get somewhere first as humans, we therefore can change it or should change it. Or if we do, at least having that discussion, not necessarily just in terms of humans and what we get out of it, but also in terms of our place within a, a broader system. And I think that's a perspective that is missing a little bit from discussions on um, things like terraforming Mars, for example, Yeah. at least in my experience, because there's so much focus on the kind of, can we, like, do we have the technology? And then the risks of like, would it actually work? And less about the, is that really a good way to go? I mean, so I think that, and this is this is what um, I've also been working on when it comes to the tardigrade fiasco, is that there will be sooner rather than later, and sooner than anyone really would prefer it, competing interests in how we approach and use space. And so up till now, scientific interests have driven activities on celestial bodies, whether it's astrobiology, uh, astrogeology. Planetary sciences, um, you know the the reason that we, that rovers and robotic spacecraft have gone to celestial bodies is for scientific purposes. Um, maybe uh, you know the banner is for national prestige, but then what do you do once you get there? You perform science, and so once we have 
I would say, competing um, interests uh, first on the moon over is this a scientific preserve merely to be used for the scientific community or is it a domain for commerce and for space development and for the creation of a cislunar economy and therefore these places are resource rich and should be utilized for their resources you will have competing interest between the planetary scientists the astrobiologists astrogeologists and scientific interests and commercial interests and space development interests and we don't know how these things will be solved or mediated there may be some countries that want to perform space sciences planetary sciences and other countries that are very mercantilist and um looking to go to space for um um for commercial purposes to develop their commercial industry and create a cislunar economy and guess what there isn't a, there isn't a solution that exists in space law to mediate those interests I think the other the other thing that I would add is that in the last year I've read two very interesting books about exploration or that touch upon exploration. The first is on Future of Humanity by um, Sir Martin Rees, and then um, the Nova Scene by uh, James Lovelock. And they both get to the point where, and they make the the point in passing that um, you know with the development of uh, you know robotics, advanced robotics, and AI. The era of human exploration of space w- might be very short um, because you can send robots and, and AI to places where, where it doesn't make any sense to send humans because AI and robots are just a lot hardier. And once those robots, robots are as smart as humans, why would you send humans to places where they can die, where there's a very good chance that, that robots will not die? So. The era of, I would say, human space exploration of celestial bodies, even for scientific purposes, there there will be some window of human exploration of celestial bodies. But at at, at the current moment, it's scientific interest on celestial bodies exploring for scientific purposes. Maybe sometime in the next couple decades, it will be humans, and therefore all the planetary protection concerns of despoiling these locations and spoiling the scientific interest of astrogeology. And at some point, that era will close because it will make sense to send robots and AI to do the exploring and the building and the infrastructure. So they both, you know, this wasn't my idea. This is both Martin Reese's point and James Love's lock point that AI will overtake human exploration of the solar system because it's just hardier. And they can do the, the scientific exploration of, uh, and astrobi- astrobiology experiments. Um, on Mars and Enceladus and, and, and Europa and Titan. And therefore, and we don't have to send any humans or any earthbound germs or life forms to those places. And we keep, keep those places scientifically pristine. And I think the other thing is many places in the solar system, right now they're under the same international law. The Outer Space Treaty, Article 2, non-appropriation, et cetera, apply uniformly to the surface of the moon, the subsurface of the moon, lunar orbits, uh, the surface of Mars, Enceladus, Europa, all the asteroids, they're all under the same regime of space law. And I think that that will probably have to change because some of those locations are scientifically interesting or or unique. And other of those places are, it's just another rock. Uh, an asteroid is just another ball of ice and nickel and rock. And there's no astrobiological, um, there's no, there's no, 
chem, uh, chemistry interest or astrobiology interest of the, those asteroids. And therefore, um, there, there's no reason to preserve them or, or be very protective of them. But if you mm-hmm. look at Enceladus or, or Europa or Titan or the clouds in Venus, um, well, those are unique locations and different regimes should apply to those places. You've probably heard of the paper Peaks of Eternal Light by, Mar- uh, by uh, Martin Elvis. And uh, that was from a couple of years ago, basically saying there are 13 places on the moon which um, are peaks of eternal light, which are not not um, unending light, but over 90% of the time, over 95% of the time, and a few of them, there is, they're in perpetual sunlight. So if you put a solar panel there, you have essentially continual energy source. And mm. these places are also... Um, proximate to water resources. And so there's 13 places where perpetual energy source and resources to be utilized. And he's followed that up this year where using, I think it was LCROSS data and imagery um, that there's 200 and I think it's 200, over 200 places on the moon that are either um, unique because of the resources that are there or they're unique because of the location itself. And these two, over 200 locations will be rivalrous. They will engender competing interests and rivalrous interests, whether it's between scientific community uh, or different nations that will want to get there first, put their rover down there, put their station there, establish a lunar outpost, um, before anyone else does, and therefore not appropriate it, which is prohibited under Article 2, but certainly uh, be there first to capitalize on any resources um, to the exclusion yeah. of others. Yeah, um, I was at a national security and space discussion yesterday, and one of the things that came up was astropolitics. So that's taking conventional geopolitics ideas and then applying them to space and seeing what we see. And much as I think some of that thinking probably goes a little bit too far, it is interesting to reflect that while we think of space as a void often, it really isn't. So different orbits and um, different locations in the solar system have different, as you've mentioned, with the peaks of light, the sort of terrestrial advantages or strategic advantages to being in certain spots. So I think that will be a bit of a shift in thinking um maybe over the next decade i guess yeah sooner um, than you think i mean it was yeah. an op-ed that, that um secretary of commerce wilbur ross u.s secretary of commerce wilbur ross published it in the wall street journal about using space resources and don't quote me but i think he said in there we need to get back to the moon and mine the hell out of it yeah so that's like not that. that that's not a space advocate at a space conference that's the u.s secretary of commerce yeah (laughs) thanks for listening to space junk if you want to know more about anything that was discussed in this podcast you can tweet me on at annie hanma you can follow me on instagram on at annie hanma Or you can send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.